Welcome to another episode of Decoded. I am not a singer. At the very least, I'm a developer with a mic. Welcome. My name is Sydney Lai. And in this episode of Decoded, we are exploring the developer platforms and tools that we've grown to love. And I just want to give a shout out to OutSystems because OutSystems is a developer platform where you can build web and mobile applications. And the thing that I love the most, like me personally, is when you're building and looking at the logic flow, you will see AI's development throughout the whole journey of your build. So as you're building your application or whatever integration you're trying to do, it will show you if like your next possible intent, it will recommend, you know, do you want to do this with your server? I, I don't know. I, I am a huge fan. I think it's, it's really, really helped me reimagine the way I develop. Kind of reminds me of Grammarly. Anybody? No. Okay. That's a whole nother tangent, but let's not get into that because I'm really excited for Bernie today from Stripe. And we're going to dive into Stripe. I think it's a pretty famous dev tool. It's changed a lot from back in the day. And I really hope to dive into just like understanding how Stripe tackles like security issues or payments. I'm a huge fintech nerd. So let's do this. I really want to welcome Bernie Torres from Stripe. I'm super excited today because I am a huge fintech nerd and I have been following Stripe's story from a pretty long time. I mean, was it like 2014 that Stripe was founded or Bernie, why don't you, why don't you kick it off and introduce Stripe? So, so glad for you to be here. Yeah. Hi, Sydney. Thank you for inviting me. I'm like really glad to be here. It's actually a little bit before 2010 was when like Stripe, well, that was the inception of Stripe. And it was uh, Patrick and John Collison, our founders, like they were trying to actually build their own thing. And then they realized that payments were really complicated. And they were like, okay, I think we can do something about this. And that's like how Stripe was born. And then on 2011, I think it's when we actually released like the first version of our API. Oh, I absolutely love that. I feel like Stripe is definitely a legend, right? Like I'm sure Stripe was like on some stack overflows or some whatever forms and whatnot. And then of course, like Stripe became famous for, I don't know, it was like, it's only 16 or 13 lines of code to to integrate your payments. Something something like that. Am I on the mark? Yeah, yeah. So the myth is that it's actually like seven lines of code at the very beginning, but we don't really know where that came from because it actually did take more than seven lines of code. But you could curl. You could just like curl the, like the payments MPI and actually have a payment like really easily. And I think the main point behind the seven lines of code is just like it was so much easier than anything before. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, I think it's so cool because Stripe, whether you knew it or not, it was like just right at the beginning of e-commerce taking off. And had we not known that, I mean, it's so easy to see e-commerce today, but had we not known, you would have so many developers painstakingly dealing with just various forms of integrating payments, right? And the fact that Stripe came around at the time that it came around makes total sense. Do you happen to know by, I know you're not on the original team, but do you know what language it was made out of or how was Stripe first built? So at the very beginning, uh, I think it was mostly Ruby. 
So that was like an easy language to prototype on, and we could create like fast things from there. We still use Ruby for a lot of our services, but we have actually like branched out to some other languages that are better suited for some of the things that we do now. Yeah, because I was going to say, especially as you mentioned 2010, and I think at least, <laughs> at least 2013, 2014 was how I personally probably came across Stripe. At the time, from like 2010 to 2014, Ruby and Ruby on Rails was really popular, especially in the Bay, especially in the startup scene. And when it comes to, I guess, tra maybe more traditional payments, and I'm talking about like big banks or even looking at across the financial landscape as a whole, Ruby, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't really widely widely adopted. But I guess Stripe at the time was really still for other startups that was at least compatible with that, with that framework. So an important thing to remember is that Stripe was founded and was geared towards developers. If I remember correctly, the first name was actually dev slash payments. So this is supposed to be a tool for other developers to use and integrate like really quickly with. So that was the point. Like, how do we make it easy for other startups, other developers, other companies in the beginning in the U.S. to actually like integrate with payments? Because it's hard. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I'm curious, like what since joining Stripe as a software engineer, like what do you think has been some of the coolest challenges? And then what are some that are still head scratchers of like, how do we tackle this? Like, how does this still exist? In terms of the payments industry in general or at Stripe? Yeah, sure. It could be Stripe. It could be payments in general. A, a little bit of both. Yeah. So one of the things that you said, oh, we were at 2010 at the beginning of e-commerce. We're actually still at the beginning of e-commerce. It's only like single digits of the whole economy that it's like on the internet. So we have so much more to grow and learn and like do. So we're still at the very beginning of this path. Um, in terms of Stripe itself, I think one of the most interesting things is to actually integrate with more countries and more payment methods. The U.S. is very credit card centric. So in the U.S., you usually pay everything with a credit card. But in other markets, there are like all sort of different payment methods. For example, in Mexico, they do something called Oxo Boleto, in which you... When you buy something, you actually get a voucher and then as the buyer of like you go to a physical location and you pay with that voucher with cash. And then eventually that actually gets like communicated back to Stripe and we can tell the merchant, yes, you got your money. But this is a completely asynchronous offline transaction with cash that we support. And there are all sort of different examples of other payment methods that as someone like probably like has lived in the U.S. all the time, like you would not necessarily know that it works differently in other countries. I'm like silently screaming behind the microphone because I'm just so excited. I'm salivating. I did not even consider the localization, like the way you guys tackle lo localization from a payments payments perspective. I'm just curious, like does the Stripe team, do you guys break it down in terms of localized products and then there's like different engineering teams or how, or how does that how does that work because it, it almost sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong it almost sounds like you're almost creating different types of like sub stripe dev tool products I, I don't I don't know but I'm curious to see how do you guys tackle at least the localization part of it yeah so it's their like I guess a shared model we have like central engineering but we also have teams located so we have a special team for like Asia Pacific and then we have a special team from Latin as well and uh, there are teams working in Europe and one of the things that so we have like 16, I think, different offices around the world right now. And one of the most important things is that our engineers are close to our customers so we can actually understand the needs of the different countries. And one like 
really like simple thing is to have an engineer that speaks the language of the merchant that is trying to use Stripe so you can like have a really quick like uh, conversation with them. So the model is mixed. There is some central knowledge, but then you also rely on the teams in different parts of the world to actually have like be the domain experts in the different payment methods. Yeah, I think having that domain expertise is definitely part of the nuances of building solutions for the payments or financial industry. What do you think has been some of the biggest lessons learned or eye-opening lessons learned um, since at Stripe, understanding how to build these kinds of technologies? So at the beginning, it was very US-centric, so mostly credit cards. And then we realized that there are a lot of different payment methods that do not act like credit cards. So in 2018, so eight years after like the first concept of Stripe, we actually released like a new set of APIs that are designed to like make it easier to work with all of this like different payment methods in a centralized way. So that is like, if you've used Stripe, that's like the payment intense API. And the idea is that you as a developer don't have to think about all of the complexities of using different payment methods. So I think that it was definitely like an evolution of Stripe on how to go from a US centric company to actually be a globalized company that can support businesses like across the world. Well, then even on just a, such a granular level, like when, when I've done Stripe, it's usually for like projects, hackathons, stuff like that. From a production side, like if a developer is bringing this into production, and this is a very granular question, like does that developer also need to consider all the localization considerations or is it what you just mentioned that it's actually part of the API package and it, it will do that for the dev? So it depends on the integration that you do with Stripe, but we do offer two products, which are uh, checkout and Stripe elements that will actually take care of that for you. So let's say that you're a merchant, I don't know, in the US, but you actually have customers in the Netherlands. Your customer in the Netherlands will see the payment method that makes the most sense from the Netherlands. So if you're in the US, we might show you credit cards first. But then in the Netherlands, we would show you something like Ideal, which is like the predominant uh, payment method over there. And that's something that you don't have to think about as like a developer at a business. It will just show the right payment methods with the right localization and the right, I don't know, like flag and that kind of like UI stuff, like wherever in the world. Oh my gosh. I mean... I'm curious to hear from your perspective. I don't know if you happen to know, but like, what do you think were some of the processes or even the languages of traditionally building uh, payment methods even before Stripe or even after Stripe launched four years later? I mean, there's still a lot of teams or projects that did not adopt Stripe at the time. Um, I don't know if you have any insights or thoughts about like kind of the before leading into the now. Before Stripe, after Stripe or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like the kind of the challenges, like the challenges of building payments prior to to Stripe. And and I mean, I, I think Stripe is such a staple nowadays. I'm just even trying to think like what what was building it prior like, like just some of the coding challenges, maybe scaling issues, maybe even security risks, whatever it may be. Yeah, so there were definitely like payments processors before Stripe, but it's, it was just harder to integrate with them because you had to understand the differences between the different credit cards. In some cases, like you have to have a business, like a relationship with a bank before you can even use one of these payment processors. So if you wanted to, I don't know, have like a stand that sold, I don't know, whatever, apples, and you wanted to be able to sell those online, you actually had to go and like go talk to a bank first. Can you please give me an account so I can like receive my money that I'm gonna get from these? And that's something that you don't have to do with Stripe anymore because we do it for you. So it was just a harder environment. You had to be way more 
knowledgeable about the domain of payments and cards and all of that. Then the other thing is that credit card networks, at least some of them, use mainframes. And you have to be able to send messages in the right binary format for uh, mainframes. So you had to build a lot of expertise around that kind of stuff as well. Oh my gosh, that is totally game changer. I mean, that makes complete sense. I mean, I think also from like, from your perspective, what are some of the best practices when it comes to building payments integrations? And it could just be either in general or just like some best practices that you've learned since being a dev working at Stripe. So one of the things that comes with being a payment processor is that you actually have to comply with a set of regulations set up by the payments card industry. So all of the credit card networks like came together and say, hey, these are all the requirements that anybody like storing or management information has to comply with. And so I think there's like, you need to think from the very beginning about how you're going to show that you're compliant, how your systems are going to actually be resilient and you're going to be able to prove that you're compliant with this thing. So it's not something that you can just like bolt afterwards. It has to be thought from the very beginning, because if you're not compliant with the credit card networks, then you cannot do anything as a payments processor. And then I think one important lesson is if you're based in the U.S., you're probably going to start thinking about whatever works for the U.S., but if you think that you can eventually scale outside of the U.S., like you don't need to pre-optimize, but be aware of how things work in other parts of the world because it might be very different. But it all depends on the kind of business that you're doing and uh, your domain, but not necessarily because it works in a way in the U.S., it will work that way somewhere else. Even like in Canada, like there are things that are different enough in Canada. Yo, I love that. That's actually a really good point. I mean, I think that I definitely come across this a lot when it's, how much are you over-optimizing? Like, I guess being ahead of the problem, but then, I mean, to your point, like when you're scaling something such as payments for localization, like one doesn't fit all. And then there's just so much, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I mean, I, th I think that's a, that's definitely a huge, a huge takeaway when you're transacting when you're transacting money as well. And it is a trade-off. Like you don't want to pre-optimize and you want to be very knowledgeable in your domain at the beginning when you're trying to build your product. But just like, I would say be aware. Like you don't have to implement anything right now, but just be aware of where the things that you have right now might not work. You don't have to make it work right away, but it's good to at least know where like your gaps are or are going to be in the future. Yeah, well, I think also knowing your gaps, that actually kind of leads me to a thought, which is like, from your experience or your observation, have you seen kind of the difference between like primarily front end devs or or traditionally full stack devs tackling Stripe versus like very traditionally like back end devs? Is there like, do, do you see a different uh, approach or experience with the two different types of devs? Okay, disclaimer, I've never been a front end dev. I've always been back end and I've been focusing into infrastructure for the last couple of years. So I, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. But what we'll say is that usually like a small company will have a front-end dev or a full-stack dev and they will do all of the integration with Stripe. And then you have bigger like enterprises that require a much more nuanced approach and the way that they integrate with like all of our different services. And that it's probably a collaboration with it front-end and back-end and full-stack and security people as well. So it really depends on where you are on the stage of like your business and the way that you're going to integrate. It can really be as easy as like one day. We definitely have lots of companies integrate 
integrated in one day. And now they're going to be just much longer because of the complexity of like big enterprises. Right. That's a really good point. And that's actually something I'd like to dive into. Like when it comes to just the the whole landscape of securitizing payments in the financial industry, like what are your like high level, even philosophical thoughts about that? Like taking one step away from your developer hat, like what is something that, well, I say take away from our developer hat, but then I guess putting the developer hat on is like, how as devs should we think about like financial security on kind of like even a grander scale? That's an interesting question. I think it's a team effort. You're not going to have like one hero engineer that is going to do security or like compliance for your team. Like it has to be a team effort from all sorts of different disciplines. It is like financial and legal and security and engineering. So I would start with that. And then I guess be really clear on what the requirements mean for you. Because one of the things that I've seen is that the like the checklist that you need to fulfill in order to be compliant, it's more like, for example, I'm paraphrasing here, but it will be like, you need to store information in a secure way. But what does that mean, actually? So like, okay, in my company, I'm going to do this like in a secured way by actually storing encrypted at rest in this particular storage, and only these people have access to this, like my storage, and this is how I'm going to comply with this particular like instruction on security. So you definitely need to translate what the like compliance checklist says to what it's going to mean specifically for your company and have that and like very clearly stated, and then later on, how you're actually going to show that you're complying, because it's not just like following it one time, you actually have to go through compliance every year. So that's another interesting thing that it's not, no, it's not a one, like one off, and then that's it, you're compliant. Like actually you need to be demonstrating this year over year over year. Yeah, I love that. That's actually a very good point. I think that, I mean, I, I hope no one thinks that. Maybe I'd be surprised that no one thinks like, all right, we're, we're done. It's secured. I can I can walk away now forever. Uh, that's a horrifying thought. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's horrible. But I totally understand where that advice is coming from. I'm kind of taking a, a step away from Stripe and just like talking as, as engineers. I'm actually like, I'm curious to learn more from your perspective of like, if you're just looking at maybe like financial institution institutional like vulnerabilities or maybe just at e-commerce or e-commerce startups. So those are kind of like two different things, either like the financial industry or e-commerce startups. Do you think a lot of vulnerabilities come through due to like outdated code and, and just payments process, like integrations in general? Is, is that you like, is that where all the cards are, are hacked or I don't know those. I remember a few years ago, it was like Home Depot or something like that. They got, they got their stuff taken, but I guess it's just kind of like overall question. Like when it comes to these kinds of vulnerabilities, is is the entry point, is it usually from like a payments processing standpoint or? I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer this question, but I think it comes from all places in the stack. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'm not a hacker by any chance. So I have, I have no idea where it comes from, but I think that, I think that when it comes to security, it's, it's a huge it is a huge part of the, I guess, conversation when it comes to payments APIs, right? And and I guess putting the Stripe hat back on, it's like, how does Stripe, like on a technical level, tackle security or security at Stripe? Yeah, well, as I said before, it's definitely a team effort. And 
I don't know, from simple things that every time that like you release something new, you have to go like through, actually before you release, when you're designing something new, you have to go like through security review to make sure that what you're designing actually makes sense. Then there are also like more operational things like staying up to date on all of our libraries and frameworks and like operating systems that we use in order to make sure that there are no like any discoverable vulnerabilities that we would be like, we might be affected by and I think designing the systems in such a way that security is not optional. So the processes are designed in such a way that you cannot just like override them or it's not up to like a human deciding something. So for example, one of the our most important or like secure servers that store some like like important information for us, they cannot be accessed by one person. You actually need two people to access it because they have like different parts of a key. So that's something that like it's it's by design. It's impossible for one person to just go in and like access that system. Okay, that's actually pretty cool. And that makes complete sense. I guess I'm also curious to know like when it comes to the Stripe's approach to, again, building payments, do you think like... Is there a culture-wide, I guess a shared culture-wide school of thought? And and maybe it is like being very like developer-centric first. Like I think that that's the first thing that comes to mind when it comes to Stripe. But like overall, what are some like huge takeaways when it comes to your learnings at Stripe that is so valuable to take into like any other team as an engineer, like a huge, huge takeaway. So there are two things that you're going to see repeated across Stripe all the time, which is one of them is what you mentioned, users first. So anything that we do, it has to be for our users or it has to be in some way like better for our users. And the other one is that we haven't won yet. As I was saying before, we're still at the very beginning of e-commerce and the economic infrastructure of the internet. So anything that we do is still like baby steps compared to what we might be able to achieve in the future. And there's a huge sense of ownership, I think, across stripes. There's nothing that it's not your job and you are constantly like helping other teams and making sure that nothing just goes unowned. Something that I really like about Stripe in terms of like helping people and making sure that like everybody has ownership is that there's this specific system it's called being on run where there is one person of the team any week that is the center point for questions and for triaging any sort of asks for your team. So whenever I want to ask, let's say another team in payments, hey, I would like you to implement this thing. There's a one person that is assigned that I know that they are the runner for that week that will either answer my question or direct me to the person that can answer the question. Instead of just like kind of screaming into the void and trying to figure out who can help me somewhere else in Stripe, because like we're a pretty big company now, like over like 2,500 employees, so you cannot know anybody. So there's this system set up in place so you can always find help in like a very timely manner. And they will help you find the domain expert if necessary. Well, that is super cool. I don't think I've actually ever heard of any dev team that does that. That's actually super, super cool. I would love to see that being enacted. So you know how engineering teams have like on-call rotation just for dealing with incidents. Yeah, we have an additional on-run rotation, which is for helping our fellow Stripes achieve whatever they need to do. I love that. I absolutely love that. And, And something that you had mentioned, oh, Something that you just mentioned, which is like, we haven't won the e-commerce payments, you know, that that aspect yet. 
I love your advice because I am already guilty. I'm already guilty of like, what do you mean? Like Stripe, payments, e-commerce, US, we got this down. But this literally goes back to what you were saying in the very beginning, which is this other frontier of tackling payments from a localization standpoint, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot to be said moving there and like expanding just into the nuances of all of the different ways, not just industries, but different markets uh, transact money is, excuse my ignorance, but is, is Stripe like looking to become more like, I don't know if international is the right word, but in my mind, it's like, it's, it's almost like you have to tackle so many markets and the way you localize payments is so different than like Yahoo's landing page. If you know what I, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, what is this, I guess for Stripe, this next frontier of like how you guys even, like, I'd love to just dive in even deeper into like how you guys tackle the different nuances of, of localization and building out these different products for different markets. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. So we support businesses right now, I think located in over 40 countries, but we can actually accept payments from almost every country in the world. So for example, I'm from Chile. Chile is not yet a country where you can like set up a business in Stripe, but I can pay with like a Chilean credit card and another business and like uh, Stripe would be able to actually process that payment. So we definitely want to expand to more countries to be able to support businesses in those countries. And I think one of the ways to do that is I was saying before the different offices that we have across the world, but we are also a very remote friendly company, especially after last year. The last numbers that I saw is that like 22% of engineering is actually remote. And I'm assuming those numbers are going to increase after we all stop working from home or people will continue working from home. I'm pretty sure I'm going to go remote, actually. I'm going to stay working from home. So that allows you to actually have people where your businesses, where your customers are, because you are not constrained anymore to being in any of the like big like metro places in the U.S. or in the world. So I think that plays like that has a huge impact just like having local engineers that understand their customers, their country. Something that we haven't touched yet is actually country regulation. Regulations, financial regulations change a lot from country to country. So there are some things that you can do in one place, but you cannot do in a different place. There are some countries that actually like mandate that all of the country's data is stored in that country and not somewhere else. Of course, with Europe, you have things like GDPR that have uh, special mandates for data. So it's not just the, okay, this is a different like language or a different payment method, but it's also, okay, how do I deal with like the financial regulation at the government level in a different country? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a huge part of, again, part of the process of building for different markets is especially how does regulation even just affect your code, right? How does it affect the way you bring, you bring that code to market as an example? And it's, it's just, yeah, it's just so different than, I guess, like one thing that comes to mind is like almost localizing dating apps, which is more of a consumer behavior rather than like a regulatory. There could be also regulatory, maybe like it has to be real. I don't know. I, but I think that when it comes to just the the environment that you're building with, there is just so many levels of nuances to consider as you're building that out. Yeah, that's, I really like that. Yeah, it's been pretty fun. 
And I think we now officially have two headquarters. We're like double headquarter in San Francisco and in Dublin. So that also, I think it's a step towards like being a more global company. What do you think when it comes to, when we are talking about like teams building with Stripe, it's like I said before, I've mostly just built with Stripe on like a very small, anywhere from project to startup level, never on an enterprise level. And it sounds like that Stripe is able to, like, how does Stripe scale for that? Oftentimes you'll see that different toolings is really designed for a very specific use case or scale. And is was that always designed? Was that ability to scale always designed for Stripe? Or was that kind of like a later addition, if that makes sense? I think in the very beginning of Stripe, it was definitely geared more towards startups and businesses that were more similar to Stripe, kind of like the the Silicon Valley crowd. But as we grew and scaled and we realized that we had a product that worked for more companies, we had to learn how to scale that as well. So I think that being able to successfully have enterprise users, it's something that we learn, we had to learn how to do. And remember that Stripe is not just payments. So Stripe is known for payments, but there is also like terminal, which is actually like being able to pay with like a credit card, like in a store or like billing or like invoices or like even like loans. We have a product called Capital that will issue loans to like small companies. So I think being able to provide that ecosystem of related like apps sort of, or products is actually something that it's really attractive for enterprises. And that's something that we've been growing as well as, as we grow and adding more of those. Yeah. I have to say that that's actually a really good point. I completely forgot about Stripe Capital. I remember meeting someone from Stripe Capital. I think it's really cool because you're absolutely right that Stripe is beyond just payments. It's financial infrastructure, right? All the stuff that you've, you've said right there is is infrastructure. And I think that that's what's so exciting. I'm I'm also wondering then like, what do you think has been some of the most either humbling or eye-opening process of building for financial infrastructure? Not so much like a lesson learned, but like something that's been very eye-opening that like we as devs who don't work in from a financial infrastructure, like industry on a daily basis that we would not have been, I guess, aware about. So I think I had some experience with compliance before because I had worked a little bit on like the healthcare industry in which you need to comply with HIPAA, which is its own set of regulations. For me, something that was interesting was being able to comply with everything that is required from us, either from the credit card networks or government policy, while at the same time being able to really fast expand to other markets. That is something that was really surprising to me at Stripe when I joined, just like the pace of innovation, while you're still constrained by very important uh, like compliance laws. The fees, if we actually were to have a breach, are like really expensive. And not only the fees, but like the trust that is lost with our users and their users. So that was like, I. we move a lot of money every day. And this is the actual livelihood of people across the world. And it's them being able to sell this to their users and then their users also being able to obtain like what they want. So it was eye-opening to me that... 
we are actually supporting all of these people across the world. If my deploy goes bad, it's not like that, like my page won't like be visible or something. Like I am actually stopping the livelihood of someone. So we need to be really careful with what we're doing. But at the same time, like we need to innovate and continue growing and like opening to new markets and stuff. Yeah, I absolutely love that example. I think that I don't know if the right term is stakes are higher, but it's definitely different, right? You're like, you're like palms are sweaty. You're like, oh my gosh, this has like, can this be redeployed again? Am I going to mess this up? I, I can't even imagine. And I think you're totally right. Like it's super different than, I don't know, like maybe, maybe you work at YouTube and you're uploading a YouTube video. I don't know. That was a weird example, but I, I totally know what you mean, but it's a completely different level of stakes if you are a dev working in this type of infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just so direct, like other products and other companies. I'm, I'm sure they also have like an impact on like people's livelihoods and what they're doing. But this one is so direct. Like if Stripe is down, people cannot like buy anything. That's it. So for me, it was just like, I feel more connected to like my customers and my users. And like, I can understand what the impact is at a more personal level. Yeah, I love that. I actually have a really silly question. Like, I'm just genuinely curious. If you're just shopping online, you yourself, can you tell like, oh, this is Stripe? Like if you're going through a checkout process or or it's not very obvious? Sometimes, like sometimes when you get um, like receipt from the company, it will say like powered by Stripe, like in tiny letters at the bottom. I guess if you were to start like inspecting like the request in Chrome, you will eventually see some sort of like request to Stripe. But I would say that the vast majority of the time you have no idea that Stripe is actually processing the payments like underneath. And if you have bought in the US something in the last year, it's very, very probable that it was Stripe processing your payment like underneath, like very probable. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty badass. I like that. And I mean, usually when I think about Stripe, I mean, there's just like, I think what I love about Stripe is that it solves a very clear and obvious need. And I think it's a developer tool that like you can use and integrate again, to what you just said on any kind of level as small for startups to all the way on an enterprise level. It's very digestible, right? Of your time at Stripe, like if there is like one main takeaway with any devs starting out with Stripe, like what do you think, like what is a huge lesson that you would like to share um, or something to keep in mind of? I mean, I think the recommendations coming from close, but I think that our documentation is actually really great. Like kudos to the product teams and documentation teams that I do an excellent job. So definitely start with that. And then there is support available. Like Stripe, I think still has an IRC channel in which you can go for support. I haven't used IRC in a very long time, but I know that's available. And there's, I think, a pretty good community of developers as well that use Stripe that are always willing to help. But I think this is more like advice for life, but it also applies for like integrating with Stripe. Just ask questions. Like, don't be scared of ask questions. Don't be scared of like think, oh, like this is a simple question or I should know this by now. The faster way for someone to ramp up on anything is to ask questions. So like, go for it. I also am just like a super fan that you mentioned that Stripe has an IRC. And this actually leads me to how I like to wrap up every podcast with every guest is what was your most memorable early technology that you remember? 
And what was that like for you? And what was it? So the first thing I thought about was I learned to program in Visual Basic when I was in high school. And for one of my like science fair projects, I actually did this thing. It was like a little like metal ball that would go from one like circuit to another, but because it was metal, it would close the circuit and that would like create the signal that would go to a computer. And I had like programmed this trivia question like thing based on Visual Basic, which was basically something that said like, whenever you get a signal, like show one of these five questions, it was nothing like super like mind blowing or anything, but it was just, I remember the feeling of like, I created the, this thing and and this is showing questions, but like it's like kind of doing it on its own. And I was like super happy with it. And yeah, it was my dad who like taught me how to program. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, that's a really, so like Visual Basic was like your first early memory. And then it led you to like the coolest science fair project that was 100% cooler than mine. <laughs> I had to like think back. I think my first science fair project that I can remember was putting teeth in soda. Like, just like, does soda degrade your, I don't, it was not, not as cool. Like not even close. I like yours, like visual basic and closing circuits with metal balls. Like that is so cool. It was really fun. And it's also a good memory with my dad because he was helping me like program this. And the other thing that I thought about was actually way, way before when I was like in primary school that I would use like Logo. Do you know Logo, the turtle program? So an Atari, no. I had an Atari. It sounds, it sounds familiar, but I don't know it. I yeah. don't know it. So in Atari, there's this program called Logo that I think does more interesting things. But what I did is that you can actually program. It was a little turtle that had like pencils of different colors. So you could tell it to go like five steps to the left, turn, like five steps to the right, like that kind of stuff. So I would draw houses with Logo. But you, I would like write my entire program first and then like I would see if the turtle actually drew what I wanted it to draw, which was not always the case. So I guess that was my first interaction with programming, just telling this turtle to draw the things that I wanted to draw. Oh my gosh, that's so cute. It actually reminds me of like maybe like some like early Python tutorials or Scratch or something like that. It's like, make your snake go this way, make it go that way. That's, oh, I love that that's still there. Oh man. Well, Bernie, thank you so much for walking us through today about not only the nuances of the, like building solutions for the financial industry, but also how Stripe tackles this from a security level and also on a localization level. Bernie, thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Yo, thank you so much for staying towards the end. Much, much appreciated. We're done. We're nearing the end of season two. And that means season three is coming, right? So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. You can tweet at me. You can DM me. Happy to just learn about your thoughts on the show. If you have any recommendations for season three, we're likely going to keep it to the same theme, but really want to introduce new formats. So I highly recommend you feel free to get in touch with me and whichever form is easiest for you to reach me. Let's hang out more and like, let's explore how we can go through this journey of uncovering, discovering, and learning about the upcoming tools and platforms that we really want to build with. And with that, thanks a bunch. See you in the next episode.